theyeshiva.net. I'm going to talk about nine holidays that were once upon a time celebrated in a very festive manner by many Jewish families, but due to the fluctuations within history, they have mostly been forgotten. And there's always something very beautiful about resurrecting and uh, bringing back to our collective conscious and memory those special dates that once held tremendous significance in the Jewish world. These are nine dates, nine dates that are enumerated in a Mishnah, in Shrakte Tainus, Maseches Tainus, page 26a, Tav Chavavah And the way our sages describe it is, Mane Atse Kayhanim Vaha'am Tisha, which literally means the time for the lumber of the Kayhanim and the people, the priests in the nation, were nine dates. What are these dates? And then we'll discuss what happened during these dates. These nine dates are, the first is the first of Nisan. The first day of the month of Nisan. The second date is the 20th of Tammuz. Esrim B'Tammuz, the Mishnah says. The third date is the 5th of Av. Chamisha B'Av, the 5th day of the month of Av. Two days later is the 7th day of the month of Av, is the 4th date. And then just a few days later, Asarabai, the 10th day of the month of Av. That's the 6th day, the 5th date. So we have... The first of Nisan, 20 of Tammuz, 5 of, 7 of, and 10 of, Yud of. Then you come to the sixth date is the 15th day of Av, Chamisha Asa Date number seven is Esrim Ba'av, the 20th day of Av. The next date is Esrim Ba'elul, one month later, the 20th day of Elul. And the final date was Be'echad Be'tevis the first day of the month of Tevis. Why were these days celebrated by so many Jewish families? When the Jewish people, the Gemara explains this in Tract Tainus, two pages later, page 28, Chavches, when the Jewish people came back from their first exile in Babylonia, present-day Iraq, Iran, to rebuild the second commonwealth and the second temple, the second base Amikdash, the poverty was very, very intense. The gold, the silver, the richness that accompanied the construction of the first temple in the days of King Solomon were gone. Those who returned from the exile, which was not a large number, was only 42,000 Jews, most stayed behind in Babylonia, were truly, truly poor. And therefore, when they rebuilt the second temple, they didn't even have enough money for firewood to be able to sustain the altar with a continuous fire, Eish Tamid Tukadal Hamizbeach, the Torah says, a perpetual fire should burn on the altar, it should never be extinguished. They didn't have the revenue to be able to buy firewood and therefore bring any of the offerings in this new temple. So what happened? There were individual families who lived there at the time who donated their lumber for the altar of the Beis Hamikdash. And they gave the lumber for the altar as long as they had it in their stock until they were done and then another family took over. So this was the first year when they rebuilt the temple and there was no, there was no, uh, there was a shortage, there was no wood. 
So, uh, for example, the first one was on the first day of Nisan. The first day of Nisan, our sages tell us which family was it. We have the re- the record of each one of the family. The first day of Nisan it was Bnei Oirach ben Yehuda, the children of a man named Oirach who came from the tribe of Yehuda. The ten tribes were exiled a long time ago, so there were basically the two tribes that were left, Yehuda and Binyamin, and the children of Oirach, the son of Yehuda, they were the family who donated the wood on the first day of Nisan. Their donation lasted for a few months. It lasted till the 20th of Tammuz. Apparently they were better off than others. The 20th of Tammuz, you had Bnei David ben Yehuda, family of David from the tribe of Yehuda. Their donation lasted for 15 days. The fifth day of Av, they needed a new family. So we had a new family. This was a family called Parash ben Yehuda, also from the tribe of Yehuda, the children of a man named Parash. Their donation only lasted for two days. They only had wood for two days. So on the seventh day of Av, you had a new family, which was Bnei Yoinadov ben Rachav, another family. And their donation only lasted for three days. On the tenth day of Av, you had a new family, Bnei Sna ben Binyamin. This was the family of Sna, who came from the tribe of Binyamin. On the fifteenth day, you had Bnei Zesu ben Yehuda, because the other donation only lasted five days, from the tenth of Av till the fifteenth of Av. It lasted for five days. So you had a new family, Zesu ben Yehuda. That donation lasted only for five days. On the twentieth of Av, Be'esrim Ba'av, you had a new donation, and this came from a family, this is an interesting name, Bnei Pachas Moav ben Yehuda. The children who came from Moavite aristocracy. Moavite, of course, is not a Jewish nation or a Jewish family. The children who came from Moavite Pachas, we have it in the Megillah, right? Ela Pachas, the aristocracy, the royalty, ministers, people in high government positions, leaders, this came from the family of the aristocracy of Maya from the tribe of Yehuda. This donation lasted for a month until the 20th of Elul where you had Bnei Adin ben Yehuda. This donation lasted for a few months until the first day of Tevis where you had again Bnei Parash who did it before in the previous year. They did it already. Hey of and they this time brought the second donation which was on the first of Tevis and they gave the temple wood. Of course afterwards they had enough revenue to be able to make this part of the annual purchases of the temple. They had a lishka sa'etzim, a chamber of wood, where they kept lumber. However, in commemoration to the kindness and generosity of these families, the prophets and the sages of the time made a wonderful institution. They made a wonderful, uh, they, institu- they instituted a very powerful and wonderful tradition and custom that each year, over the next hundreds of years, when it came that day, when that particular family had the merit of contributing their lumber to the Beis HaMikdash, each year, even if the temple coffer was filled with wood and there was really no need for any individual family to contribute wood, but that day, in commemoration of their original generosity in those early, early days when the situation was so impoverished, and so poor that they would each year contribute the wood for the altar in the Beis Hamikdash, carbon eitzim, and the family would make a huge yomtif. 
they would make a family celebration and festivity. And this went on for hundreds of years because the second temple stood for 420 years. It was such a powerful Yom Tif. Remember that one of these donations happened when Asara Ba'av, the tenth of Av, right? You had five of, and you had seven of, and you had ten of. Now we know that some years, the tenth of Av can be a fast day. But nonetheless, this was Doicha, the Tainas, this family, because it was, was a Yom Tiv that was instituted in the beginning of Bayesheni, so therefore this uh, override, and they literally it would nullify for this family the fast of Tisha B'av, which sometimes falls out on the 10th of Av, like this year when Tisha B'av was Shabbos, that they did not have to fast in commemoration of this contribution. That's why I spoke about these nine holidays, Man these days that were part of Jewish families and Jewish life. What is interesting is the fact, when you look at most of the donations, what is their date? The first one is the first of Nissan, granted. The next one is four months later, Nissan Ir Sivan Tamas, the 20th of Tamas. But when you go to the next one, you have Hey of, Zion of, Yud of, and Chaf of. So that's interesting that four of them, Hey of, Zion of, Asaraba of, Chamisha Asaba of, and Esrimba of, I stand corrected, that's five of them, which means the majority of these contributions, because you only have nine dates, all happen in one month. There is one in Nissan, there's one in Tamaz, there's one in Elul, there's one in Tevis. Shchaydish Nissan, Esrim Betamuz, Esrim Be'el, uh, Esrim Betamuz, 20 Tamuz, 20 Elul, and the first day of Tevis. But five of them all happen in the month of Av. Five of, seven of, Yud of, Tuba of, Chamish Asaba of. On a practical level, it's obviously because <laughs> those families had very little wood. So one gave on the fifth of Av, and two days later we needed a new one, and three days later we needed a new one, and five days later we needed a new family, and five days later we needed a new family, and then a month later we needed a new family. Yet these days become holidays for hundreds of years for these families. And in Torah and Yiddishkeit, everything in the world is with providence, with hashgacha. There must be some uh, symbolism or significance for the fact that five of these holidays all happen in the month of Av, which of course this is already in the second Beis HaMikdash after they experienced the first time when the Beis HaMikdash was destroyed in the month of Av. At this point they wouldn't know that the second one would also be destroyed on the ninth, uh, on the ninth day of Av. Another fascinating thing is the power of this holiday to the point that even when the Jewish people were celebrating, were commemorating, were mourning, were grieving over the destruction of the Beis HaMikdash. This holiday was so powerful, even though it seemed very individual, family-oriented, that it can override the fast day of Tisha B'av. I want to go for a moment to one particular date and a fascinating argument about that date. I mentioned the 20th of Av, the mission identifies the family as Bnei Pachas Moyav Ben Yehuda. Now most of the families is pretty straightforward. You have the name of a father. He's like the matriarch of the family, whether his name is Oirach or David or Parosh or Yoinadav or Sna or Zesu. But Esrimbav, 20th of Av, 
there's a little bit of a strange name, the children of Pachas Moiv, or the aristocracy of Moiv, Ben Yehuda. Who is this? So, there is an argument, of course. <laughs> and the Gemara, over there in Tainus, page 28, quotes two opinions. And the opinion, uh, the two opinions, let me quote it. Let me uh, read it inside, verbatim. Who are these Bnei Pachas Moiv, Ben Yehuda? So I quote... Reb Meir says, Hain bnei David ben Yehuda. These were the children of David. They came from the lineage of David HaMelech, who obviously is a descendant of Yehuda. David's father was Yishai. Yishai's father was a man named Oived. Oived's father was Boyaz. And if you go back, Boyaz is a few generations from Peretz, who was one of the two twins born from the relationship between Tamar and Yehuda. Yehuda, of course, is the son of Yaakov. So, Bnei Pachas Moyev Ben Yehuda is really a euphemism for the descendants of David. David, of course, lived hundreds of years earlier. He was the king, the father of Shloyma, who built the first base of Mikdash. This is a few centuries later. This is the second base of Mikdash. But they can trace back the lineage to David, the family of Yehud. Rabbi Yossi says no. They were the children of Yoyav Ben Suriah. Yoyav was a nephew of David HaMelech. David had a sister. Her name was Tsruya. Yoyav was the commander-in-chief. David appointed him as the commander-in-chief, the one who commanded the troops of the Jewish people at the time. And he was his nephew. Tsruya was David's sister. And Tsruya's son was Yoyav. So the question here is, Reb Meir says that it came from the family of David, who comes from Yehuda. And Reb Yoyzi says, no, they came from the family of David's sister. They traced back their lineage, not to David, to David's sister. Of course, ultimately, they would go back to Yehuda because David and his sister were both children of uh, of Yishai who traced his lineage back to Yehuda. Why then are they called Bnei Pachas Moyav, the children of the aristocracy of Moyav? If it's David or Yoyav, they're both Jews. So, of course, Rashi explains... You know why they were called aristocracy of Mayav? Because David didn't only come from Yehuda. David also had another side to his lineage. Of course, from his father's side, Yishai, Oivet, Boyaz. Oivet's father, father was Boyaz, but who was Oivet's mother? Oivet's mother was Rus. Rus was a Moabite. She came from the aristocracy, from the royal family of Mayav. And the same is true with the second opinion, Yoyav. Yoyav is the son of Tsruya. Tsruya is a daughter, a sister of David. If she's a sister of David, her great-grandmother is also, of course, Rus. Her father is Yishai. Her grandfather is Oivet. Her great-grandfather is Boyaz. Her great-grandmother is Rus the Moabite. So the Mishnah calls them the children from the aristocracy of Mayav. Even though there's an argument whether they come from David or they come from Yoyav, but the bottom line is they both come from a Moavite family, a Rus, a Rus family. Now when you think about, uh, when you think about this argument, it seems, uh, it seems a little, uh, it seems a little strange on a few counts. Number one, the Talmud in Tainus is addressing an event which occurred hundreds of years earlier, hundreds of years earlier. The Talmud was written in the 5th century after the Common Era. Reb Meir and Reb Yossi, who are arguing, lived in the 2nd century after the Common Era. This is a century after the destruction of the 2nd Beis Hamikdash. 
That means they're discussing an event that happened five, approximately, give or take a few years, but approximately a half a millennium, approximately 500 years earlier. Why is it relevant to know if they traced the lineage to David or they traced the lineage to the nephew? I mean, do we have to argue about everything? As I said, this is an argument by the sages who live a century after the destruction of the second temple. The, the famous expression in Gemara, my dahava hava, what was, was. To debate at this moment the exact genealogy of a family who contributed wood 500 years ago on a specific day seems completely irrelevant. What's the point of this argument? Just to have another argument? No, David, no, Yayov. But there's something else. That's a little disturbing. The Torah prohibits us of reminding a convert of his or her non-Jewish origin in a way that may make them uncomfortable. The Torah views this as a great sin and repeats it not once, not twice, but many, many times to be sensitive to the feelings of a foreigner, of a stranger, of somebody who came from a different tribe of a different nation. Respect to such a person and sensitivity to their feelings is paramount. Why then does the mission identify this family as the Moavite Jewish family? We're anyway saying David, Yoyav, Bnei Yehuda, Bnei Pachas Moav Ben Yehuda, the descendants of Moav, who is considered one of the great enemies of the Jewish people. Especially in this context, you're trying to praise the family. You're trying to bring out its generosity. Why would we emphasize its complicated origin, especially one that was subject to great debate and controversy? Because for generations, there was a question if David is a complete Jew, if Yoyev is a full Jew, if Rus was allowed to marry a regular Jewish man. It was a very major, major debate. There was somebody who refused to marry Rus because There is another holiday in Jewish history that is much more well-known, even though it's not observed today the same way that it was observed, which actually coincides with one of these nine holidays and is about to uh, emerge in our calendar. Chamish Asabaov, the 15th of Av, Tubaov which is one of the dates when the families contributed wood. This is not just a holiday. The Mishnah says in Tainus, same tractate, There were no holidays as great as two days. The 15th of Av and Yom Kippur. What made them so great? The daughters of Israel, the daughters of Yerushalayim, two virgins would go dance in the vineyards, and many shidduchim, many matches, many families, marriages, relationships were created from that day. Chamisha Asabaav and Yom Kippur. Asks the Gemara, Yom Kippur, I know the uniqueness of the day. Yom Shenitnu Bailuchus Acharoinus, it's the day when the last, the second tablets were given to the Jewish people. Essentially, it was the second marriage between God and the Jewish people. The first marriage ended up with the breaking of the tablets and the second marriage, or the reinstitution of the first marriage, second vows, the second luchas that Moshe came down with on Yom Kippur become a day of atonement since then. So it's a unique day. But what happened on the 15th day of Av to make it such a unique holiday similar to Yom Kippur? So the Gemara goes through different events that happened in Jewish history on the 15th of Av. 
But there is one event that, as the Marsha says, stands out from all the other events, and that is a very interesting reason for the celebration. What was the reason? We go back to the wood. You see, the firewood in the Holy Temple had to be wood that did not have moisture in it. Because wood that has moisture in it attracts worms, and worm-infested wood, wood that is infested with worms, is war- with, with worms, is disqualified to be used on the sacred altar. This means that the wood, before it was brought to the temple, had to be very, very dry, which would ensure that there was no moisture to attract any type of worms, insects, rodents, reptiles, etc. As a result of that, these logs, this lumber, needed to be dried in the heat, scorching heat of the Middle Eastern summer boiling hot day. Cut-off time for cutting fresh lumber for the temple was therefore when? On Chamisha Asabaaf, from the 15th day of the month of Av, Tashash Koycha Shalchama, the power of the sun wanes. The intense heat of the Israeli summers break. The days also become a little shorter. And the reason they become shorter is, it's part of obviously the cycle of the seasons, all signifying the fact that the intensity of the sun's heat decreases. Because of that, they couldn't be sure that the moisture in the lumber was dry to the point that it rejected any worm or similar type of creature which would disqualify it. So that's when they stopped cutting all the wood that they would need for the next year in the temple. They would cut it in the summer. What was cut-off day? Chamisha Asabav. On the 15th day of Av, they stopped cutting the wood. They even gave it a name. Yom Tavar Magal. The day when they broke the axe. <laughs> You finish cutting and you could, it was hard work, and they fin- they break the axe and now we're done. We have all of the, f- all of the wood that we need for the end of the summer and for the fall and for the winter and for the spring until they would cut for the next year and they would stock it up in the holy temple in Lishka Saitsum and they had enough wood. This is the reason for the holiday. And one wonders, it's a beautiful moment, I'm sure. They finished the cutting of the wood. But does that make it the biggest holiday in the Jewish calendar compared only to Yom Kippur? It was a beautiful tradition and a very important, significant, symbolic day. They finished doing a mitzvah. They finished the mitzvah of cutting the wood. But does that really give us a perspective? Why? There is no day in the Jewish calendar that can be compared to the 15th day of all. Only one, Yom Kippur. And the match between the two seems very difficult to understand. Yom Kippur is called in Torah, Achaz Bashana. Once a year, it's considered the holiest day of the year, when the holiest Jew, the Kayan Gadol, on the holiest day, Yom Kippur, went into the holiest place. It was a convergence of Olam Shana Nefesh, space, time, and soul, on the highest level of holiness, all in one. The holiest person, the high priest, the holiest day in time, Yom Kippur, the holiest place, the holy of holies in the Mishkan, or the Beis HaMikdash, and it all comes together. Yom Kippur is considered a day of cleansing, of atonement. Leviticus tells us, on this day, there is complete cleansing, transformation, renewal. 
It's the day that the Jew is compared to an angel. We dress in white, we don't eat, we don't drink, we abstain from many material uh, pleasures and connections and indulgences, all the five things we afflict ourselves on Yom Kippur. It's a day of heightened spiritual consciousness and elevation to the point that Yom Kippur, the Jew, is compared to a malach, an angel. Shul and Talesim and Kitlach all day, dressed in white and in a different zone, so to speak. Especially at the highlight of Yom Kippur Ne'ilah. But Chamisha Asabav, how does it make it onto that list? They finished cutting the wood, they finished doing a mitzvah. But why would it be equated with Yom Kippur? Why is it so powerful? Why is it so significant? And why did they choose that day to make Shaduchim? That's the day when the girls and the boys who are not married yet, can meet and interact and hopefully create families. Yom Kippur, I understand. Yom Kippur is the day. It's called Yom Chasunosa. It's the day that the Shidduch between God and the Jewish people came back to life. There was the Shidduch number one on Shavuos. The tablets broke. It represented a breakdown in the relationship. There's even a reason I once saw, I think from the Maharshal, why we break a glass under the chuppah. And one of the reasons I was given is because the luchas were broken. The tablets were broken. And now it came back, there was a renewal, there was a healing of the relationship. It came back much stronger, that's the significance of Yom Kippur. So it's really a day of cosmic marriage. It's the cosmic marriage between God and Israel happens on Yom Kippur. But what is the connection between stopping to cut the wood with a day dedicated to relationships? And... They tell the Bachrim, Sana Einecho Re'e, lift up your eyes and see. Lift up your eyes and see and choose. As the Mishnah and the Gemara in Shrakte Tainis continue the details about how it happened on Chamisha Sabah. There must be some, some secret here, some significance here. The question becomes even stronger when you think about the fact there was no mitzvah to cut the wood. The mitzvah is to put wood on the altar. That's a mitzvah. There's a mitzvah to bring offerings, and to bring offerings you need fire, and to have fire you need wood. So the Torah says that the kayanim, the archu hakayanim, they have to prepare wood on the altar. Cutting the wood in the forest is something we call in Judaism heksha mitzvah. Heksha mitzvah means to prepare for a mitzvah. Preparing for a mitzvah is very important, but it doesn't come close to the mitzvah itself. I mean... Imagine a bride who goes to buy or rent or borrow a wedding gown. And as she puts on the wedding gown and it fits, she breaks out in dancing with her mother and her mother-in-law right there at the gemach of the, of the gowns or the store, wherever it is. Okay, that's wonderful. But imagine that the dancing there is much greater than the dancing at the wedding. Something is strange. I mean, it's important to get a gown. It's called a heksher for the chasana. <laughs> Sometimes it's harder than the wedding. But uh, but you have to have perspective. A person goes to cut off schach from the tree to put on the sukkah. It's important. It's a heksha mitzvah. But that's not as exciting as the sukkah itself. So when they brought the wood to the altar, there was no yomtif. When they put the wood on the altar, which is a heksha mitzvah, there was no yomtif. When they finished cutting the wood in the forest behind the scenes, that's when the greatest yomtif happens. A boy goes to buy tefillin for his bar mitzvah. It's very exciting. He gets the tefillin, gets the tefillin bag, starts dancing, everybody's dancing, but when he puts on the tefillin, nothing. Here, the cutting of the wood is what's celebrated, the finishing of the cutting of the wood, what's celebrated above anything else, and celebrated not just a small celebration, but like Yom Kippur. 
כחמישה סבא וחיים הכיפורים. There's a line I once saw from Oscar Wilde, and he said this. He said, the best feeling in the world is to do something anonymously, and then somebody finds out. It, of course, was a very cynical way of describing the human condition. We love doing things anonymously, and we love when somebody finds out. And both elements are very real parts of the human condition. You know, the person who does you a favor and says, I don't need credit. Remember, I don't need credit. I'm not the type of person who needs credit, but I'm going to explain to you for an hour that I am not the type of person who ever needs credit. Don't mention it, by the way. Don't even mention it. But God protect you if you forget it. God protect you if you forget it. You had families who had wood. This wood was their private possession. We don't look as wood to something so precious and expensive. But it was. And the fact is that the Holy Temple, the Beis HaMikdash, couldn't afford their wood. When you ask these families, what are you doing with this wood? And they said, we're going to give this wood for the Beis HaMikdash. For what? For the altar, to burn on the altar. Why? Do you have to bring your own offerings? Do you have to bring your own carbonus? Do you need wood? They said, no, we don't have to necessarily bring our own carbonus. This wasn't a private thing. We need carbonus. So what carbonus is it? It's carbonus of the tzibur. The community has carbonus. I mean, we're part of the tzibur, but it wasn't connected to any individual. And then there's different Jews who have to bring carbonus. What type of Jews had to bring carbonus? There were all types of Jews, but primarily there were Jews then when you transgressed various sins willingly or unwillingly. There were different carbonus that you would bring. They were known as carbon chatas, carbon asham, carbon asham toloi. There were different types. Many of them were for sins. A family may think, it's not my issue, it's not my concern, it's not my problem. Why do I have to part with precious, precious wood? That I'm bringing not for my own purpose, but for the sake that a Jew who may be a sinner, who may have not been very scrupulous, who may have not been very God-fearing, should be able to bring his carbon. Why is it my ASIC? Why is it my problem? Why is it my concern? This is what one might think. Nonetheless, these families, with joy, with glee, brought the wood for the sake that other Jews should be able to offer all their offerings during these days. And not only did they bring it, they turned it into a yomtif. This became a great celebration, which is why it was instituted as a great celebration, because they saw it as their ultimate celebration. Their ultimate celebration was the ability to donate lumber to a temple that will be benefited by a community that transcends them as a family or as individuals completely. In fact, the carbon sibur, by definition, 
was called Sibur because it was not connected to every individual. It came from the money of the Sibur that came from the Machtas HaShekel that everybody donated, and then it became part of the Kasa, part of the fund of the Beis HaMikdash. Without any individual, you had to completely detach your own relationship to it because it was called a communal offering. Or for an individual Jew who may have committed a very serious sin and he or she wants an atonement or another need that this Jew had and therefore I am donating that wood but I'm not just donating it begrudgingly. The family turned it into their greatest day that the sages saw it was such a powerful day that it had the power to nullify the fast of Tisha B'av when the two coincided. Where did this experience come from? Where did this... Uh, where did this feeling come from? It came from an awareness, a very deep awareness, that your joy is also my joy. That your growth is also my growth. That the fact that you can reach your closeness to God, even though it's not directly connected to me, it's not my family, it's not me, it's not me individually, means the world to me. To the point that I'm ready to say goodbye to that which is very precious, even though it's not my offering, it's not my carbon, whether it's a tzibur or it's a yachit, it may also be mine, but it's not necessarily, we have no source that it was their own carbonus at all. That's why five of these donations happen in the month of Av. And it's fascinating that it happens in the month of Av. Because the month of Av, in a paradoxical way, is the month that needs this message this level of awareness more than any other month. The month when the Beis HaMikdash was destroyed and would be destroyed, primarily because of the strife, animosity, divide between Jews, and the fact that people cannot see themselves as a collective and the individual identity trumps the collective identity to the point of sinah, of hatred, of distrust, of a lack of respect, where I have the ability to detach myself from you. What's the remedy for it? The remedy for it were these five families. These five families who exercised and who embodied a very different experience. So in the beginning of Bayez Shani, Providence had it in the beginning of fixing what happened at the end of the previous Beis HaMikdash, which there was also a tremendous strife Sinas Chinam says about the second base, but it was also a tremendous strife because the exile ultimately happened because um, the split that happened in the kingdom after Shloyma's death, which weakened the fabric of Jewish civilization. There was a northern kingdom, there was a southern kingdom, and ultimately they both could not last. It became two kingdoms, two governments, two nations, and the ten tribes were exiled, and then the last two tribes were exiled. The beginning of the on the healing of that, is that in this very month of Av, these five families represent a new perspective, a new consciousness. Your growth is my growth. Your joy your joy is my joy. And your, your yearning to get closer to Hashem, to get closer to your soul, that be able to help you do that becomes a joy of a family, even though it has nothing to do with that family or that, uh, that particular individual. That's why perhaps it's these Five, five of them, the majority of them, happened in the month of Av. But let's take it one step further. Till the 15th of Av, you could still cut new wood. 
after that, beginning with the 20th of Av, the wood that you're donating is really precious because it can't be replenished. For another year, it can't be replenished. Because as we remember, on the 15th day of Av was cutoff time. And as a result of that, this is really the wood that you're giving away and you, you can't get it back until a very long time. And it's here where something even deeper emerges. The family that contribute wood on the 20th of Av, in a time when their own wood supply could no longer be replenished, their gift was held in special regard. Whenever you give away wood, it was special. But now it's giving away something that you're going to have to wait for a year because the next wood can't be that you cut can't be used in the Beis HaMikdash. And these families, again, we emphasize, it wasn't for their own benefit. It was for the rest of the community, even for individuals who were obligated to bring their own offering, even if they were sinners. Now you can really ask the question, why should I give precious wood that I cannot replenish at this point? I can't go to the forest, even if I have a forest, and get back this wood for this sinner. He sinned, he violated Shabbos, he violated idolatry, he violated something promiscuous that he did. Let him worry about his wood. He's a Mitzayra, he's a leper, he gossiped, he slandered. Let him dig about his wood. Let it part be part of his cleansing. But they gave away their wood so that every single Jew would be able to re-experience their relationship with God. Now, I don't know how many of you ever stood in the forest in the smelting heat of an Israeli summer to cut wood. I know people who walked around in the Israeli heat eating Strauss ice cream or Lafa. I know people who went to Eilat or the springs in Tiberias or ate the breakfast with the nice cheeses in the Plaza Hotel in Jerusalem. But how about an activity of going near some wadi in Israel in that sweltering August, July, beautiful heat in uh, in the Holy Land and cut wood? Because remember, the moment it's not hot anymore, the wood is not kosher. It's a grueling task. A lot of sweat, sometimes tears. Yet, this family stood in the forest for many days, for many weeks, maybe months, cutting enormous quantities of wood because that Beis HaMikdash sure ate up a lot of wood between the offerings of every day and the offerings of the people, individuals, communal, a lot of wood went. And they took all this wood and they gave it away in a time when it can't be replenished so that every single Jew, even a Jew they never heard of, they don't know his name, they don't know her name, even a Jew who committed a sin, he'll be able to have a burning flame in the Holy Temple and be able to bring his or her sacrifices to the Almighty. And let's remember something else. The multitudes of people who bring these offerings on the Temple won't know to whom the credit is due. The priests are there, but those who donated the wood are not here. They brought the wood, they went home, and there was no plaque. There was no plaque by the altar reminding every visitor who you send a thank you card to, who you send a text to, who you send flowers for Shabbos, or at least a nice bottle of wine. So basically it's a donation without accolades. So okay, people do this. But did they do it begrudgingly? They did it with tremendous glee. They marked each each year this day became a day of festivities. They saw it as one of the happiest days of their lives. There is a characteristic here. And the Gemara therefore asks the question, who is this family? 
Who is this family that has this type of blood flowing in its veins? That's why there is a debate about the genealogy of the family who brought the wood on the 20th day of Av. The Talmud is not trying to debate genealogy of an event that happened 500 years ago. It's trying to understand where a family inherits this type of generosity. Who educated these children? And the answer, of course, is Pachas Mayov. This comes from a story outside of the Jewish world. It comes from a story of Mayov. It comes from a woman whose name was Rus. It's her story that explains the life of this family. Hundreds of years after she lived, Rus was a great-grandmother of David. This is the beginning of the Second Temple. You're dealing with a period that spans more than a half a millennium. We all know the story of Rus. It's movingly described in the book of Rus. But I always want to mention that that core point that is relevant here. And that is, Rus marries a Jewish boy, Machloin. Arpa marries another Jewish boy, Kilion. The family of Elimelech, Naomi, and the two sons left the Holy Land, Bethlehem, because there was a famine. And where did they move? They moved to the field of Moav. The two boys marry Moavite girls, Rus and Arpa. Elimelech dies. Afterwards, the two boys die. Naomi, the mother-in-law, is left with two of her daughters-in-law who are both widowed. So you have three widows here. Naomi, Rus, and Arpa. They lost their fortune. And then the three men also lost their life. The mourning period is over. Naomi has nothing left here. What does she do? She begins her painful journey back home to her people. Rus and Arpa accompany her faithfully. They travel 40 steps. That's not a long, long journey. 40 steps. And that's when Naomi turns to them and says, don't continue this journey. Go home. Go back to your parents. Go back to the affluent life of your youth. You can marry fine Moabite young men and enjoy a very bright future. To quote Naomi, she says, return my daughters. Why should you go with me? I am an old, broken widow. Life has been cruel to me. You girls have a bright future. She's explaining to them, you're young, you're beautiful, go back home. Arpa agrees, it makes sense. The sober logic of her pious mother-in-law sits well with her. She exchanges her frail, elderly, broken, devastated mother-in-law for a new and hopeful future in the culture she was raised in. But her sister-in-law, Rus, has a different response. She is determined to share a common destiny with Naomi. In the words of Ruz, Vatishak Arpa Arpa kisses her mother-in-law goodbye. Rus cleaves to her mother-in-law. And then Rus says those immortal words that become uh, enshrined in the eternity of the Tanakh and the psyche of our people. Stop begging me. Stop pleading with me to leave. Where you go, I go. Where you dwell, I will dwell. Your people are my people. Your God is my God. Where you die, I will die. And that's where I will be buried. Arpa goes back to Mayav. She begins a new life. One day she would give birth to a young man named Goliath, Goliath. We did a whole class on this before Shavuos one year. 
But Rus voluntarily remains with her mother-in-law. I don't know if that ever occurred again in Jewish history. <laughs> Present company, of course, excluded. She becomes a Jew. She is destitute. She's lonely. She's friendless. So from a royal, aristocratic, and wealthy background, Rus is now penniless and impoverished. She's a convert from a nation that was seen as an arch enemy to the Jewish people to the point that a man who converts from Moiv would not be allowed to marry an ordinary woman and therefore even Rus's marriage to an ordinary Jew was debated for generations. So she knew that eyebrows will be raised when people hear about her origin when she sits down and says, who's that, who's that, who's that, who's that? Moiv, okay, and there we go. The former princess was forced to get in line with beggars in order to collect leftover grain from field owners so she could survive. And the question you have to ask is, why would Rus make such a sacrifice? Naomi was logical. Arpa was following logic. Why did she subject her life to such difficulty? There was no obligation to follow her mother-in-law. She should have easily and could have easily followed her sister-in-law. She was not disappointing anybody. She was not behaving in an ungracious way. At that point, as far as she was concerned, her photo, her bio would not be posted on any website. She was not a sensation. She was not a story. She was not a woman of valor. There would be no classes on Rus. Nobody would have ever heard that name again. Nobody would sing her praises. Nobody would marvel at her commitment. She was a poor wanderer, completely out of the limelight. What inspired her? And the answer is, of course, her words. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people are my people. Your God is my God. Where you die, I will die. Her agenda was one thing. It's called truth. That was her only agenda, the truth. The Rambam has a phrase in Hilchus Tshuva, chapter Yud, Laws of Repentance, chapter 10. Oysa es ha-emes mepnesho emes. You embrace truth because it's true. Because it's true. How do you explain this to somebody? (laughs) Somebody says, but why? Why? What am I getting for it? Nothing. (laughs) But So why? Explain to me. Because it's true. So what? What am I getting from truth? If you're getting something from truth, it's not true. (laughs) That's exactly the point. It's not something I can explain logically. Logically, if you're giving me something good, if not, not. How do I explain to somebody? You may not get, you may not get, you may not get anything. You, you may even lose everything. It's exactly what Rosa did. She lost everything. Remember, she doesn't know the end of the story. We know the end of the story. As far as she's concerned, her name is anonymous and nobody's finding out her name. She's just a beggar who will live and die and life will move on. What is the motivation? And how do I explain it logically? Why? Is there popularity involved? Not necessarily. Maybe the opposite. Is there richness involved? No. Is there spiritual benefit? Am I obligated? Is God going to hold me accountable? Is Ruth going to go to purgatory if she doesn't come? No. So she doesn't even have that incentive. They can't even scare her with Gehenim like they do to others. It's not going to work. There's no Gehenim for her. She's a Moabite princess. She's good. She just has to be a nice lady. That's it. Sheva mitzvah b'nei noyach. What touches her? What touches her is one word, truth. 
And when a soul that is full of truth senses truth, it almost can say no. Not because why, it's not a why. The moment you ask me why, I'm out of that zone of truth. I'm now in a different zone. I'm in a zone of what works for me, what's beneficial for me, what's going to be the reward. All good stuff, but it's not that space anymore. But that core place of truth that a person has, that unique, indispensable, quintessential place of truth, wants truth just because it's true. It's not a because. It's not, it's true because it's true. So I want to be able to say that I have truth. No. It's true. I don't even want to say the word because because I'm ruining it. So it's not only I don't want attention or validation or credit or word or comfort or recognition. Even on a spiritual level, I'm not looking for the spiritual high, for the benefit. I'm looking for the truth. She was a princess within. There was no need for external validation even from herself. Some people don't need validation from other people, but they need validation from themselves. Ruth didn't even need that. She just wanted she wanted truth. Ultimately, her name is, of course, engraved in the annals of our history. She marries a judge named Boyaz. They gave birth to a boy named Ovid, who's the father of Yishai, who's the father of David. David Malach Yisrael, Chai Vekayam, and the entire Davidic dynasty, including Mashiach himself, is traced back to that one female woman, Rus. But that's not how it began. She became the mother of Jewish royalty because... Rus represented a quality that is ultimately the true quality of a leader. There's only one agenda. The agenda is only truth, nothing else. I serve God not even to say that I serve God, not for any reward. Before anybody would know her name, she says, where you go, I go, where you dwell, I dwell, your God is my God, your people is my people, where you die, I die. Six centuries pass. There's a Jewish family living in the onset of the second temple. There's no wood. The wood is very precious. But this family comes along and demonstrates a certain type of generosity. So they stand for weeks in the scorching heat of the Middle Eastern summer. They're sweating away, engaged in excruciating labor. Why? In order to give a contribution which they will not be able to replenish for the sake of people whose name they don't know, people who will never know them, people who they don't, they don't know, people who may be in a very low spiritual caliber. Where did they obtain this level of commitment? That's what the Gemara wants to know. And the answer is whether they came from the family of David or they came from his general Yoyov, this does not cut it. David and Yoyov were both great men. But both were very popular and influential, even at a very young age. And their fame reached the entire nation. But this family had a special quality. Ah! B'nai Pachas Moyov. This family came from Moyov. It was the gift of Rus. It was the Moavite princess. Precisely the fact that she came from Moav. That's the whole point of the story. Without that, you're missing the story. Who left everything behind to embark on an unknown journey. One which might bring her nothing but scorn and more scorn because of all the people who dislike Mayav. Why? And the genes of such a grandmother don't die. Six centuries later, it affects children, it affects descendants. Centuries later, Rus inculcated something in this family, 
that would not leave them hundreds of years later. Bnei Pachas Mayav Ben Yehuda. But here we come to the next step. Namely, these families had a tremendous simcha. And I know what their joy was. They have the merit to bring wood to the base of Mikdash, to give it to the Kayanim, which will place it on the altar. Yes, the plaque is not there, but they go home and they know it's our wood that is sustaining the fire for a day, for two days, for three days, for five days, for a month, or for a few months. Depends on how much wood they brought. That's the family who brings the wood. But now, there are those who stand in the summer heat and cut the wood. I am there in the forest with an axe, with my talus cotton, whatever I'm wearing, schwitzing away. I may not even have the pleasure of bringing the wood to the Besamiktash. When I'm standing in that heat and cutting the wood, what is going on? I don't even have the ecstasy, the pleasure of being noticed by the people in the Besamiktash who I'm bringing the wood to. I'm completely behind the scenes. I'm in the forest. Why am I doing it? Why am I sweating this summer and cutting wood? And the answer is, because one day, some of this wood or all of this wood will be brought by me or maybe by somebody else to the base of Migdash for the sake of people I don't know, for the sake of the community, for the sake of individuals. And that's why I'm cutting the wood. The day that this finished, our sages say, This day is like Yom Kippur. What's the uniqueness of Yom Kippur? Why is Yom Kippur a day of cleansing? Why is Yom Kippur a day of atonement? What's the uniqueness of the day of Yom Kippur? What sets it apart from all other days of the year? It's called Achas Bashana. Once a year. Every day we have three prayers. Shachris, Menchemayrif. Shabbos or Yom Tif, we have four. Yom Kippur, we have five. There's a fifth one, Ne'ilah. The soul has three layers of consciousness. Nefesh, Ruach, Neshama. Another two layers called Chaya Yechida. The Medrash says, Chamisha Shemes Nikola. The soul has five names. Nefesh, Ruach, Neshama, Chaya Yechida. What are these five layers of consciousness? Nefesh represents your biological consciousness. What we call the electrical currents that allow the hundred billion neurons in your brain to fire every nanosecond and allow for the 50 trillion cells in your organism to function and replicate and make sure that the body's mechanism is acting perfectly or hopefully close to perfectly or heal what has to be healed. That's nefesh. That's this basic soul, the electricity of the body. We spoke last week about the electricity, the electrical signals that give the body vitality. Ruach is a deeper layer of consciousness, Ruach is related to emotive consciousness, emotional consciousness, deep feelings, deep experiences. Neshama is even deeper. Neshama is awareness, cognition. And the awareness of a soul is very profound because awareness transcends what I'm capable of sensing or feeling even at the moment. There's even something deeper and that's called Chaya. Chaya, Ches 
represents the yearning for spiritual transcendence, the yearning for meaning. Awareness is the curiosity of a person, the scientist in a person, the one that asks questions, and the one that becomes aware of truth that transcends my sensations, which you can't expect from an animal. But Chaya is the unique sensitivity of a human being to spiritual truth, to transcendent truth. And then there's Yechida. And Yechida is called one, Yechida Layachtach. It's the quintessence of the soul that is undefined. What is it defined by? It's one with oneness. Yechida Layachtach means it is actually divine. It has no definition, just like God has no definition. How do you describe it? You can describe it with a particular quality because it's undefined by any description. The other four have definitions. They have descriptions. They're part of creation. Yechida Layachtach is the core of the soul which is completely one with the divine, and therefore, just like you can't describe Hashem, you can't describe that dimension of oneness. It's the place of the person that is completely one with all oneness. It's the place of truth. There's no falsehood, there's no corruption there. It's invincible, it remains divine, it's eternal. Nobody can shatter it, nobody can destroy it. Sin can't reach there. What happens on Yom Kippur is that dimension emerges. When that dimension emerges, all is forgiven because in that level there's no sin. There's no alienation. There's no detachment. Detachment can happen on different conscious levels of the self. But in that core self, you're never detached. And therefore you don't have to be attached. You always remain whole. There's even an opinion in Gemara that the very day of Yom Kippur atones, even without tshuva. The other opinion is no, you have to do tshuva. The Rambam says, The day itself atones for those who do tshuva. How can a day atone? A certain day comes and you're atoned. What did I, you didn't do tshuva? But the view of Rebbe in Tractate Shavuos, page 13, is the day itself creates atonement. How can that happen? I understand if I say I'm sorry. A day comes, January 3, atone. Why? What, what do you do? The answer, of course, is that on that day, there's a certain energy in the world which allows a deeper state of consciousness to emerge. And over there, we were never detached. The sin only happened on lower levels of identity where you were looking for entertainment or there was temptation or there was guilt or there was a void or there was pain or there was anger, whatever happened. But in that core place, you never sinned. So this, when that comes out, we were always one. The sin happened on lower levels when you didn't recognize who you really are. But when that emerges, the day itself creates atonement. And even the halacha, the Rambam says, the day itself creates atonement if you do tshuva. It's not just the tshuva, it's the day. Yom Kippur is the day because the tshuva allows you to experience it, but it's the day that has this charged energy that allows it to come out. That's why there's five prayers. The fifth prayer represents yechida, which is ne'ilah. Ne'ilah, we spoke once, the way we usually translate ne'ilah means closing because they always say that the sun is about to set, and therefore the gates of heaven are going to close, so therefore chaparan, you know, throw in the petitions, register before the gates close. But there's really something much deeper about Ne'ilah. Ne'ilah means that the gates of heaven are closed, but you're inside. That's why it's compared to the Yichud room. Yom Kippur is like the wedding, the chuppah, but the Yichud room at the end is only the chasen and the kal. Even the photographer leaves. Can you imagine? Even the photographer who never leaves. He's paid not to leave. He's more important than everybody else. The witnesses, the rabbi, the chassan, kala, who cares? The photographer. That's the most important thing. 
Even the mechotonim leave the room. They're not going to stay out for too long, but they uh, they leave the room. Everybody leaves the room. Why? And the fascinating thing is, you know, from all my experiences, they never eat the food in the Yichud room. They have been fasting all day, which is why the rabbi and the photographer afterwards come in for the kill. It's like when the lion, the lioness, you know, gets the prey, and then the lions leave, and the hyenas come in for the kill, right? The yichudim, you'll always see the photographer and the rabbi, because there's always the best food. You're not going to go find good food at the wedding, necessarily. But in the yichudim, we always have it, because they have rachmanas for the chalson and kalon, they've been fasting. They don't eat in the yichudim. Like by Ne'ila, you'll see, especially by Shema Yisrael, Hashem Uelakim, most Jews don't feel hungry, because there's a very powerful adrenaline in the yichud room, that even though they didn't eat all day, but there's a very intense explosion of affection that's called Yechideh, the oneness comes out, Yom Kippur. So that's what Ne'ilah is, that's the day of complete atonement, because it's a day of complete oneness. What's the other day that could be compared to Yom Kippur? You look around. One day they found Chamish Asabav. What's the day of Chamish Asabav? Chamish Asabav is the Jew who's in the forest, clapping away in the scorching heat, chopping wood, Nobody's there. There's no video. It doesn't go viral. It doesn't go viral. <laughs> it doesn't go on the websites. Nobody knows his name. There's no plaque. This is completely behind the scenes. Not even the pleasure and the experience of bringing it to the base of Mikdash. This is all pre, pre, pre that. It's the person standing in the sun all day for what? So that a Jew whose name he doesn't know and whose name that Jew won't know who may again be a sinner, should be able to bring his carbon, and that's why he's chopping the wood. And when that is finished, the Chazal tell us, this represents a different type of person. Because this represents truth. This represents commitment. This represents dedication. Shahu Emes. This is not a person who's ever looking for the limelight. The word limelight was coined in the 19th century, just a little trivia. Because basically, when they had plays in theaters, they wanted intense white light for the theater stages. So they took lime and they burnt it. And in the burning of hydrogen and oxygen, it created a very intense white light so that the actors who were acting on stage are called being in the limelight. Because when you were on the stage, you were acting in the limelight. That was the point. So that's how the phrase was coined. They need to be in the limelight, or they don't need the limelight. Because of the intense light that the lime that was burnt uh, produced in the theater stages. So, of course, limelight is very attractive. And if you're doing something to be in the limelight, awesome. And even if you're doing something not to be in the limelight, but only one person should know that you're not in the limelight, it's all fine. And people should always do good things no matter what the motives are. The bottom line is what you do. But what's the day that's compared to Yom Kippur? It's the day of Chamisha Sabav. Because Chamisha Sabav is that day that represents a different type of Judaism. It's a Judaism where you don't speak about reward. You don't speak about punishment. You don't speak about benefits. You don't speak about so what. But where am I getting more perfect? You're not steiging in perfection. You're not reaching madregas. There's no levels. You're just chopping some wood. (laughs) 
It's not, you're not even doing a mitzvah. You're preparing the preparation for somebody to prepare for a mitzvah. There still has to be a lot of processes. So what are you doing? You can't like say, wow, this, this, this feels good. There's like a lot of Olam Haba here, a lot of Ganeiden, a lot of check, a lot, a lot of, uh, a lot of boxes I can check off. It's a nice thing. It's a good thing. But you know, there's bigger things on the checklist and certainly nobody sees it. Sometimes you yourself don't see it. But this is the day that they compare to Yom Kippur. Because what the sages understood so powerfully is that this is where Judaism really exists. This is where the Jewish soul really lives. Everything relative to this is a kinderspiel. It's like, it's, it's, it's superficial stuff. It's fine. It's fine. But it's like, you know, okay. The moment you give me the because, the moment you're busy with telling me how I'm going to gain out of it, you lost my essence. You lost my yechida. You, I can't give you my core. There's no core here. It's, I'm operating in a very superficial place. Chamisha Sabav is the day that represents real connection, real commitment. Yechida liyachtach. Yechida liyachtach means a place where the eye and God's eye become one. And therefore my eye and your eye can become one. So when they had to choose what's the best day for marriage, What's the best day to determine the day of relationships from all the days of the year? Yom Kippur is one day, and Chamisha Sabav is another day. Because what does it really mean to be in a relationship? What is marriage really all about? What is it? Marriage operates on so many levels, so many stages. There are obviously marriages that are very dysfunctional, that are toxic, sometimes abusive, God forbid, but even if not abusive, just dysfunctional. Sometimes marriages that are just not happening, they're, they're, they're dead, they're numb, they're lifeless. But sometimes there are marriages that, that work. But we aim for the stars or even beyond the stars. So when they chose the day when relationships, marriages should be created, which day did they choose? From all the days they chose Chamisha Asabaov. This is the day they chose. The day that the Jews stopped cutting wood in the forest. What in the world is the relationship between that and marriage? It seems as disjointed and disconnected as you get. But it's only disconnected if you look at it from a superficial point of view. When you look at it from a deeper point of view, it's really what a real relationship is about. A real relationship is when there is a fusion of such profound trust on the level not only of nefesh and ruach and neshama and chaya, but even on the level of Yechida, which is why Yom Kippur becomes the day of the marriage between God and the Jewish people, that second holiday, Yom Kippur. There's a fascinating um, insight. If you could put your cell phones on vibrate, please. There's a fascinating insight. Rashi says in Deuteronomy, Parshas Kiseitse, chapter 24, it says, When you marry, a, 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 when you have a new wife, there's a new marriage, don't go to the army. You have to remain home for a year. You should remain home afterwards also. But it means to remain home completely for a year. Look who's talking. Beautiful words. And you should bring joy to the woman you married. That's your responsibility for the first year. Again. Not only the first year, but the first year completely. That's your thing. Don't do anything else. First year, don't think about anything else. 
So Rashi says, what's v'simaches ishter? Yisamaches ishter. So Deuteronomy 24.5. Kiseitzei chavdalad chavav. Yisamaches ishter. You should be mesameach. You should rejoice. You should bring joy to your wife. Now listen to this. V'targumai. The right Aramaic, the correct Aramaic translation is v'yachdi yos itzei. Yachdi in Aramaic is simcha. You should bring simcha yos itzei to your, his wife. Very strange Rashi. And if you're going to translate this verse as you should rejoice with your wife, you're making a mistake. Because then the Pasuk would have to say v'samach im ishtoi, not v'simach es ishtoi. So if it would have said, V'samach im ishtoy, V'samach es ishtoy, it's, he celebrates, he's besimcha with his wife. But it says, V'simach es ishtoy. What's V'simach es ishtoy? He brings joy to his wife. V'simach. He becomes the cause of simcha to his spouse. So Rashi says, I want you to know, you translated, V'yachdi im isesei, not, I'm sorry, V'yachdi yos isesei, not V'yachdi im isesei. Yas or im, you bring joy to your wife or you're doing it with your wife. The strangeness about this Rashi is you gave a translation to the verse. You never have Rashi say, and by the way, there's another Aramaic translation and that's a mistake. What is even more strange is this great mistake is in Targum Yoinus and Benuziel. When you read the Targum Yoinus and Benuziel, which is the authoritative Aramaic translation that comes from Yoinus and Benuziel, he translates it in Rashi's wrong way. He translates it as v'yachdi im isesei. When Rashi is quoting the wrong translation, he's quoting a translation from Yonis and Benazil. This is not hypothetical. This is not somebody who may make a mistake. And he says, if you translate it this way, you're making a mistake. Translate it my way. And my way is v'yachdi yos isesei. Rashi knew about the Targum Yonison. How can he say einze elatoya? He's making an error. There's a very, very powerful message here. There's two ways in which marriages operate. One is v'simaches ishtoi, and one is v'samach im ishtoi. What's the difference between the two? The difference between the two, and each one has its place, but there's a very big difference. V'samach im ishtoi is each one of the two, the husband and the wife. Here we're talking about the husband, but the same is true about the wife, obviously. The focus is I want to be happy together with you. You want to be happy together with me. I say, of course I want you to be happy. I want to be happy together with you. And that's what the other one says as well. Rashi says, Hametargim, Yachdi im isesei toyehu. If you're going to translate this Pasuk, I'll be happy the first year with my wife, you're making a mistake. Why are you making a mistake? What's wrong? What's wrong is... This, for a relationship to really thrive and reach its most powerful place, its most powerful potential, is when a person can truly, truly tune in and ask themselves, what does the other person really, really need? What does the other person really, really want that I can give to you, to this person? And the same is true, the other spouse asks the same question. When a husband and a wife ask this question, let me really tune into you. 
let me really think about who you are, your mental space, your neshama, your life, your challenges, your gifts, what your day looks like, what your night looks like, your weaknesses, your fears, your joys, your hopes, your dreams. Really tune into it and bring joy to that place. That's the Yom Tov of Hamisha Asabaav. But, 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 but what am I going to get out of it? But what is she going to do in return? But what is he going to do in return? But, uh, and where do I come into the picture? Okay, I got it. If there is betrayal, if there's a lack of trust, this can't happen. Because if I feel that every time I give, I'm just being abused in the process because this is a real dysfunctional relationship. So there you have to figure out what's going on. But in a healthy relationship of two mentally, emotionally stable people who work on themselves and who want a good marriage, if the focus of a marriage remains limited to quit per quote, you did this for me yesterday, I'll do this for you today. You made me happy yesterday, okay, I owe you one favor. Their relationship lives in a very, very superficial place. Before I think about you, let me think about... What am I getting in return? What did I not get in return yesterday? What's in it for me? Okay. But it's a very impoverished relationship. It's a very, very poor relationship. Is it a relationship? Yeah. Is it better than killing each other? Much better. Is it better than getting divorced? Probably. Again, I'm not talking about abuse and all that. Of course, it's fine. Some people do that their whole lives. Quit My needs, your needs, my needs, your needs. <laughs> There was a fellow who came to see me with his wife. So basically there was so much fighting, they decided that they're splitting everything in the house equally. So they have... Fascinating, right? Okay, I'm not going to get into it. But basically everything was split 50-50. And he came for advice. He has a separate thing of toothpaste, of course, because you don't have a right. Of course, two separate bank accounts. Uh, the electricity bill gets split get split in half. Uh, so he came to ask for advice about certain things they didn't know how to split, how they should figure it out. I'm like, you need something much more than to figure out how to split the toilet paper in this marriage. Trust me, something. But on many levels, we often remain stuck in that place. What happened? What happened was there was no oneness. There was no yechida. It's ultimately a place of estrangement. And therefore, I always have to look if I'm secure in this relationship. And when I'm not, I can't do this because it's too painful. It's too scary. And that's what happens between us and God also. When there's estrangement, I always want to know how much Ganeidin and how much Gehenim I'm getting. Because essentially we're strangers. So I need you to make it worth it for me. You want me to come with you on the trip? Make it worth it for me. What's going to be my reward? But imagine, imagine if a husband or a wife and they ask their spouse, can we spend some time? And the other person wants to say, says, but how much reward am I going to get for that? You'll say it's pretty pathetic. Or imagine a wife asks her husband a favor and he says, well, wait, wait, let me take out the ksuva and see if I'm obligated. He reads the server. Sorry. It doesn't say that I go, I have to pick up your sister from the airport. Sorry. It doesn't say I have to buy a bottle of milk. Sorry. But it doesn't sound very much different than a Jew who says, okay, it doesn't say in the silver, so I'm not going to be punished. I'm not going to be rewarded. I'm not doing it. 
when a marriage is based exclusively on reward and punishment, my wife is not going to make supper. If I don't do what she wants, I'm not getting supper. No laundry. The house is going to be a mess. Oh, I got to do what I got to do. But in Judaism, we don't even realize how immature it is. <laughs> I'm like, I have to do what I have to do because God won't give me supper. And God's supper is very delicious. And if I don't do what I have to do, my wife is going to punish me. Or my husband is going to punish me. God is going to punish me. In Judaism, we're happy to teach that level of Judaism. In marriages, we know how pathetic it is. So what happens here? What happened? Like imagine you're giving kala classes and you tell your kala, you know, you should be nice to your husband because each time you're not nice, he's going to punish you. And you tell the boy, by the way, you should be nice to your wife because if not, she's going to punish you or reward you if you do good things. Really? That's what's going on? It's like pretty, pretty, a lot of help is needed here. What about fusion? What about trust? What about oneness? What about building a life together? What about camaraderie? What about being here for each other? Two souls becoming one and they could lean, fall on each other, rely on each other, be here for each other emotionally, physically, spiritually, psychologically. Of course there's a lot of rewards and of course there's consequences, but that's really very superficial discussion unless a relationship is completely broken and you have to start from the beginning. So when Judaism is very broken, so then the language becomes a broken language. But the real language, the real authentic language is a very different language. It's not a language of reward and punishment. It's a language of truth. It's a language of oneness. It's a language of fusion. It's a language of celebration. And that's why the day that they chose for that ultimate relationship is Chamisha Sabaav. Because Chamisha Sabaav is that day when what's represented is an Avas Yisrael, a love to a fellow Jew in which there's no accolades, there's no reward. Nobody finds out. Nobody knows who you are. Even you barely know who you are. There's not even a mitzvah. You're not even doing a real mitzvah. There's no checklist. There's no great reward. Why are you doing it? And the answer is, stop asking me why. (laughs) Stop asking me why. I'm doing it because we're one. I'm doing it because this is real. I'm doing it because that this Jew should be able to get closer to God is meaningful to me in the deepest place because that's who I am. That's what Yechida means. Yechida is oneness. That's why these five families' contributions happens precisely in the month of Av. That's why it goes back to Rus. What was Rus's motivation? Why? And Rus says, <laughs> you're not going to get a mathematical answer. Basher telchi elech, basher talini, the Balshamtev once told his students that he, his soul, they asked the Balshamtev, who was your soul in a previous reincarnation? So the Balshamtev said, it was a Jew who lived in Svas. If you could put your cell phones on vibrate, please, or turn it off. There was a Jew who lived in Svas. And uh, this Jew, this Jew lived in Svas. <laughs> Send them my regards. And this Jew was, uh, the Baal Shem Tov says, he lived a generation earlier, a few generations earlier. And one day there's a knock on his door, and he opens the door, and somebody comes in, and the man says to him, what did you do on the day of your Bar Mitzvah? 
So the Jew says, how do you know about the day of my bar mitzvah? So he says, I am somebody who knows about what you did on the day of your bar mitzvah, but I don't know what you did. I know about what you did. I want to know what you did. So he says, it's none of your business. <laughs> and he sends him out of the house. The man comes back and he says, what you did at the day of your bar mitzvah created such a commotion in heaven that Hashem was touched so deeply. It was obvious to everybody. I want to know what you did. And the Jew looks at him and says, I told you it's none of your business. It's private. Leave. He leaves. Comes back some time later. The Baal Shem Tov is telling the story and says, listen, I'm Eliyo Hanavi, and if you tell me what you did at the day of your bar mitzvah, I will come learn with you every night privately. We know there were great souls in history who had what's called Gili Eliyo. I'll come with learn, learn with you every day, night privately. Your life will be transformed forever. But I need to know what you did on the day of your bar mitzvah. And the Jew looked at him and he said, what I did on the day of the bar mitzvah, I did for God alone. And therefore, I will not share it with you. He says, but you're giving up learning with me. He says, if I have to give up learning with you, I'll give up learning with you, but I'm not going to share what I did. And the Baal Shem Tov said, that soul was reincarnated into me. What was the Baal Shem Tov trying to say? I think, my own interpretation, the way I understand it is, the Baal Shem Tov was trying to teach something. And this really would become a fundamental point of probably one of his core teachings, and it's fascinating. Baal was the founder of the Hasidic movement. If you'll ask somebody, what is the main message of, uh, of the Hasidic movement, of Hasidus? I don't know how many people will answer this. Some people will tell you Kugel. Some people will tell you Kishka. Some people will tell you Shalashudas. Some people will tell you Shtraimlach. Okay. Maybe some people will understand that there's something a little deeper. They'll tell you something deeper. What the Baal was telling his students is, that at the core of all my teachings is going to be this comment. That even Elio Hanavi coming to learn with you is seen as a bribe. It's a bribe. It's the greatest bribe in the world. It's a good bribe. But there's a point of something that I will not give up even for that. But how? How could you not? Elio Hanavi coming? I mean, it's going to be on your tombstone. You're going to be the Gadol Hadar. Everybody will come to your door. But he said, no, I will not, I will not, I will not share with you what I did. Why? Because I did it only for Hashem. And because I did it only for Hashem, there's nobody else in the picture. There's nobody else in the equation. Sharing it with somebody else will be, will be a betrayal. It will be compromising that truth. It's not for any, anybody to know. But you're giving up so much spiritual perfection. So be it. Life is not about spiritual perfection. Life is about truth. Have a wonderful week. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.